Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, many of you know I grew up in Missouri, and one of the, the strange things about Wisconsin that stuck out to me is that Wisconsin does not have a professional hockey team. Doesn't that strike you as odd? I mean, Florida has two professional hockey teams. It never snows in Florida, or at least not much, but Wisconsin has no professional hockey team. And so I know you don't follow it too much, but there was a recent poll taken uh, of the NHL, the National Hockey League, of uh, players. And one of the questions on that poll was, which player do you least enjoy playing against but would like to have on your team? The clear winner receiving over 25% of the vote was a Boston Bruins winger named Brad Marchand. And one reason why people hate playing against Brad Marchand and wish that he was on their team is because Brad is known for licking players from the other team. And this is not just like licking them on the shoulder or on the arm or something like that. That is licking their faces from the opposing players on the opposite team. This behavior is so repulsive and offensive that the NHL had to formally warn him to stop licking other players. When Brad was asked, why do you lick other players? Uh, he said something along this line. I have to sanitize it a little bit, but uh, he says to make them angry. Like that's why he does it. And I would say he's pretty successful. Um, as disgusting and repulsive and offensive as licking his opponent's face is uh, he accomplishes his purpose, which is to get under their skin, ironically by licking their skin, but he is getting under their skin by doing these things. In today's passage, Jesus will perform two miracles. And in case you're getting bored of Jesus healing people, which we shouldn't, but in case you're getting bored of Jesus healing people, these are two very unique miracles compared to the rest of Jesus's miracle. The first miracle that Jesus does, he will probably offend you. The second mir miracle Jesus does, he will probably disgust you. And yet with each of these miracles, the offensiveness of Jesus's words and the disgust of Jesus's actions are for a very intentional purpose of communicating the extravagant grace of God to the whole world. So if you would, please open up to Mark chapter 7. Uh, it, you are in the red Bible. There should be, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair in front of you. It's 843 in the red Bible. Uh, keep that open during the duration of the sermon. We'll be looking back at it time and again. Uh, just prior to this passage, Jesus and his disciples land on the western side of the Sea of Galilee in the region of Gennesaret. Uh, Jesus heals uh, all these people, they bring their sick, they bring their lame, and Jesus heals all these places in the marketplace. The marketplace is a place where you rub shoulders also with 
Gentiles. We'll talk about what that is in a little bit. But, but the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, were not celebrating and praising God at the miraculous works of God through Jesus, but rather condemned Jesus because his disciples were not washing their hands before they ate. Uh, it was not an issue of, of cleanliness, but an issue of holiness for them. They had added these laws to God's law saying, you know, in order to be ceremonially clean to eat, you have to wash your hands um, just in case you were contaminated by touching some Gentiles or something like that. And so Jesus exposes their legalism. He calls them out on it. Uh, he shows how their legalism actually leads them to disobey the law of God by not honoring their father and mother in many other ways. And then Jesus reveals that defilement doesn't come from the food that we eat, but defilement comes from the very heart of man. All of us are sinful and depraved in our nature, and that's where defilement comes from. And so Jesus now ends this conflict with the Pharisees and the scribes, and he takes off. And this is what comes next. So uh, we're going to just start with verses 24 through 30, although we'll go through verse 37 eventually. So this is God's word. Mark 7, verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And she said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has lost, left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let's pray. Lord, this is a challenging passage to wrestle with, and so God, pray that you would help give us focus and understanding um, as we sort through it, Lord, uh, but most of all, that we would see the good news that is treasured in this passage, that is buried in this passage, and that it might become a, a place of joy for us, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a simple word uh, of definition that many of you know, but not all of you, and the word is Gentile. And the word Gentile simply means a non-Jewish person, okay? And so I'm curious here, is it, I'm curious if you're so bold, is there anyone here that uh, is, is their, their history is that they, their lineage is Jewish? Is anyone here Jewish? Okay, one person. We had one per two people, okay? We had one person in the first service. There's not a lot. And so the majority of us here in this room are Gentiles. We are non-Jewish people. And the reason why that is so important for the passage today is that Jesus, throughout his ministry, spends most of his time in the Jewish region ministering to Jews. But today he's going to break out of the Jewish region and go into the Gentile region. And he's going to perform some miracles in some very peculiar ways. Again, I said the first one will probably offend you. The second one will probably disgust you. But Jesus performs these miracles in these ways in Gentile regions to show us that 
the crumbs of gospel grace are not just for Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles like you and me here today. And so I have three points. Uh, They are a bit strange, just like Jesus' miracles. But the first point is this, is that Jesus delivers demon dog daughters. Jesus delivers demon dog daughters. Say that really quick three times in a row. It's hard to do. Um, But but. But as we dive into this, just to give you kind of a heads up, is that we're going to spend a lot of time on this first main point because there's a lot to sort through. This is maybe one of the most confusing, uh, difficult passages in the Gospel of Mark, maybe in all of the Gospels. And so we're going to get a little bit heady, a little bit intellectual to make sure we understand what's going on in this passage. So uh, with that forewarning, um, verse 24. It says, and from there, that's from his confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus arose and went away. This is an emphatic going away, like slamming the door. To the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet, he could not be hidden. So if you look at the map up here on the screen, uh, what you will see is that Jesus was in this area of Gennesaret. That's probably where he was with the Pharisees and the scribes. And after the confrontation, Jesus heads north, all right? And this is about 30 miles. Jesus is inside entire, entire, he's in the region of it. And so this is probably a, a two-day journey, a two-day walk to get up there. It's not right around the corner. Uh, Jesus goes up to the region of Tyre and Sidon for a reason. Now, something that is very interesting about the region of Tyre and Sidon is that it is the New Testament equivalent of Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 uses Tyre and Sidon interchangeably uh, for Sodom. And so we read it in Matthew 11, Jesus is saying, but I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And so when Jesus is rebuking these Jewish cities for not receiving him, the trashiest, most sinful, most hated cities that he can think of are Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon uh, were the home of Jezebel, who nearly took out the northern kingdom through her idolatry. During the Maccabean revolt in the second century, the people from Tyre and Sidon fought with Seleucids against the Jews. Josephus, a Jewish historian that lived about 100 years after the birth of Jesus, said that Tyre and Sidon is notoriously our bitterest enemies, talking about the bitterest enemies of the Jews. They hated the people of Tyre and Sidon. There was so much animosity towards those folks. Really, the closest thing I can think of in in my experience was when I was in college. I loved college sports. I went to the University of Missouri, and so people would say, who do you root for? I said, well, I root for Missouri, but I also root for anyone who plays against KU because KU was our arch enemy. We hated KU so much in an unchristian way, very much unchristian way. Uh, it was so bad, in fact, that I know uh, many people, many students would sneak in flasks of alcohol into the game for the football game, and when the KU band would come by, they would throw these flasks at the band. It was awful. It was a horrible thing. But that's how much animosity was there. In this passage, there is even more animosity than that. The Jews hated and detested the people from the tire inside. And so Jesus figures, I can go there. If I go there, then all the Jews that are pressing in upon me to be healed 
will not follow me there. And he goes up, up there to get some seclusion. But as Mark said, Jesus could not be hidden. So verse 25 says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, meaning not Jewish, a Seraphonician by birth, meaning that she is from the region of Phoenicia, okay, this, this region of Tyre and Sidon. And so this woman comes in, and she really has four strikes against her. One is that she's pushy. She barges in on Jesus and his disciples when they're trying to have a time of peace and refreshment. Secondly, she is a she. Oftentimes in this, in this, re, in this, uh, in this area, uh, women were treated as second-class citizens and weren't given right to be uh, with a rabbi and talk to him. The third is that she is living in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and I've already talked about the animosity there. But fourthly, she's a native. She's homegrown. She's born and bred in this area. This woman is the furthest thing from a Pharisee, from a scribe, or even from a Jew. And so the disciples uh, know this, and they so detest this woman, and they so dismiss this woman that in the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, we read that the disciples actually beg Jesus. They beg Jesus, saying, send her away. For she is crying out after us. She's annoying us. Get rid of her. Now, surely we would think that Jesus would be nicer than the disciples. But look at verse 26 with me again. It says, And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I don't know about you, but that seems like a little bit cold, doesn't it? I know that dog can be a term of endearment for us. Like, hey, what's up, dog? Or this is my dog, right? Like, we have dogs as pets. We love dogs. Um, but dogs were considered very dirty animals in that day, especially if they weren't pets. There was a lot of stray dogs, and they would eat carcasses of people and of animals. Um, they would eat the trash off of the ground. Uh, I mean, even we know, like, dogs will eat their vomit, right? And the way they say hi to people is not the most sanitary way of smelling one another. But to call a person a dog was a term of reproach. If you remember, Goliath uh, called David a dog. Uh, even in, I believe it's Philippians chapter 2 or 3, or maybe it's Ephesians, Paul calls false teachers dogs. Dog was a term of reproach. And it was a name that Jews often used to refer to Gentiles. And so here is gentle and lowly and kind Jesus saying to this woman, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You know, we may think that Mark is just kind of short to the point, tersh, and that's why it comes off that way. But if we look in the Matthew account, Jesus also says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so this does not seem like the Jesus that we know. I mean, do you, you know there's like that Superman and then there's evil Superman? This feels like evil Jesus. Racist, hateful, spiteful Jesus. I love what Lincoln Duncan says at this point. He's like, who is this man and what have you done with my Jesus? But here's the thing. On a flat medium, like reading on a, on a page of the Bible and being so disconnected from the culture of the time, there are several things that we cannot perceive. We cannot perceive the tone of Jesus. We cannot per 
perceive uh, the, the body motion of Jesus. To be honest with you, and I'll, and I'll explain more why later, but I think uh, Jesus was actually carrying on this conversation, not to show that he was stingy with God's grace to the Gentiles, but to show that he was generous with God's grace to the Gentiles. And this whole time, I think the woman knows about this and she's in on it as they're trying to teach the disciples. So let me give you an illustration from my own life, and this happens all the time. But on Wednesday, uh, I was driving around doing errands in the evening, and I had a coupon for a free ice cream cone at McDonald's. And I know you probably want to pummel me, but I think McDonald's has the best ice cream in the world. I know it's crazy, but I think it does. And so I went there, and I was talking into the speaker and trying to get my coupon code and all that sort of stuff. And there was like mumble back. It wasn't a very good transmission. But got it done, pull up to the window, and I don't just get one ice cream cone, but I get a second ice cream cone and a third ice cream cone. And I'm sitting there thinking, am I supposed to eat all of this ice cream? And of course, the Christian answer is, no, Dan, don't eat all the ice cream. Take it home to your kids. And so I took the ice cream home, and I get home, and Trish and Carissa and Cooper are in our mudroom putting together a bunny cage. And I, I look at Trisha and I talk to Trisha and I tell her the story. Hey, I got these two extra ice cream cones. Which trash can do you think it would be best to throw these away in? Um, and she's like, oh yeah, and she knows what I'm doing. She's like, oh yeah, let's throw it away in the garage trash can. That'd probably be the best, it would be the cleanest. And so I start heading towards the garage to throw away the ice cream cones. And what do you know? Chris and Cooper pop up. No, 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 I'll take the ice cream cone, right? I'll take that. Those are for me. And of course, that's what I had intended from the very beginning. I think in a very similar way, and I will give proof of this here in a little bit, but I think in a very similar way, Jesus is having this conversation, looking at the disciples but talking to the woman to uncover their lack of understanding of God's grace to the Gentile community. And so on the surface, it seems like Jesus is succumbing to the cultural beliefs that these Gentiles are not worth his time. But digging below the surface, I think we will see the exact opposite. So this is going to take a little bit of work. Again, this is where this gets a little bit more academic. But I have, I think it's six signs that Jesus is actually not communicating his stinginess of grace to the Gentiles, but the exact opposite, his pleasure to give grace. The first is just the scripture around this passage, the scripture that comes before this passage. If you look back a few verses into verse 18 and 19, uh, you will see that, that Jesus says to the disciples, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And then Mark makes this very strange, seemingly out of nowhere comment, Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know what this means. But, but what it's talking about is that the Jewish people had certain dietary customs and for, for many different reasons. But one reason was to keep them distinct from the Gentiles, from the people around them. And yet throughout the New Testament, as we get to the Gospel of Acts, God says, hey, take this pig, which is unclean, and eat it. And it is a symbol that God is opening up salvation to the entire world. It's not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And so in that passage in the Gospel of Mark, he is giving us, he is setting the table for what is coming next with this Gentile woman. And after this, a Gentile man saying, listen, salvation is not just for the Jews, but it is for all people. The second reason that I believe that Jesus is entertaining this seemingly offensive conversation uh, is because he 
but, but it's actually showing his grace is because of his geographical travel in here. If you look at this map, what you'll see again is Jesus is in Gennesaret. And he goes up here to the region of Sidon and Tyre. Uh, again, that is on the way to nowhere for Jesus. Jesus is not going further north after this. Matter of fact, Jesus is going to come back down south after this, which means that Jesus is going up here for a reason. He's going up there because he has an appointment. You know, if you looked at my travel log and you saw that I stopped in Milwaukee, Chicago, and Indianapolis, you would conclude Dan's destination is Indianapolis. But if I stopped in Milwaukee and then, and then uh, Madison and then Walsall and then Iron Mountain and then back to Green Bay, you would conclude Dan is a salesman, right? And he has appointments in all of those locations. It's the same way here. Jesus is not in a line to anywhere. He is doing a sporadic travel because he has divine appointments with these Gentile people. The third reason why I believe Jesus is actually trying to show the extravagance of grace to Gentiles is because of a single word in this passage, a very important word in this passage. Look at verse 27. And Jesus said to her, let the little children be fed, and here's the word, first. Let the little children be fed first. That word first is so important because Jesus is cracking the door open for non-children of Abraham. That word first is so important. For example, if you came over to my house and I cooked a barbecue and you're like, oh, can I have some of that food? If I said, well, I'm gonna feed my kids with it, you'd be like, oh, I don't get any food. But if I said, I'm gonna feed my kids first, you'd be like, great, I get what's left over. I get the extra. There's gonna be enough for me. In the same way, what Jesus is doing here by using this word first is he is communicating something to the woman that she is aware of. I can almost imagine Jesus saying with, it, with a wink and a smile, like, hey, I have to feed the kids first. Wink, wink, smile, smile. But even if he wasn't doing that, the woman knows this word first is a crack in the door. And she is going to blow that door wide open to receive God's grace to her. And we'll see that in a little bit. So the fourth reason, actually I'll skip this one, it's not as important. The fifth reason I believe Jesus is seemingly uh, entertaining this offensive conversation but showing grace is because he lets this woman get the last word. If you've read the gospels, you know that Jesus always gets the last word. He has that final linguistic, you know, quip that proves the point that he's trying to say, just like he did with the Pharisees. But in this passage, he lets the woman get the last word because what he is trying to teach his disciples, the woman is preaching to them. And so there's this Gentile woman that is instructing the disciples on God's grace to Gentiles. And so see how, how the woman responds. Look at verse 27 again. It says, And Jesus said to her, Let the children, that is, the children of Israel, be fed first. You see, salvation is first for the Jews, then it is for the Gentiles. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Right? Yes. Feed the children of Israel first. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Notice here, she is not defensive about her identity like the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were so defensive about their self-righteousness. But in this passage, she understands her depravity of heart. She understands she has no religious pedigree, no credential. She knows that she is a dirty dog sinner. She knows she deserves nothing from Jesus. And that's why in the other passage, she cries out for mercy, because mercy is all that she can ask for. 
She is so certain of her own depravity, but she is even more certain of Jesus's divinity. She is certain that Jesus is the one that can bring healing to her daughter. The, the fifth reason, actually, I don't know what number I'm on, but I think it's six. But the reason why I believe that Jesus um, is actually communicating God's grace to this Gentile woman and not the opposite is because he does what he doesn't have to do. Jesus heals this woman's child. Look at verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. You know, I I told you that I think this woman is kind of in on the conversation. She understands what Jesus is up to. Actually, I think she is much more spiritually mature than the disciples in this passage. And the reason why I think that is because if you look at the parallel account of this story in Matthew chapter 15, in verse 22, it says this, if you could put it up on the screen. It says, and behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out and was crying, have mercy on me. She knows her depravity. Have mercy on me. Oh, Lord, son of David. This is what the disciples should have been addressing Jesus as. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes should have been addressing Jesus as. Oh, Lord, son of David, you are the promised Messiah, the child of David from the lineage of David. You see this woman has this proclamation of faith. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. So even there, Jesus, who's able to read hearts, but also in her words, can see that she is a woman of great faith. And then once this whole conversation takes place, at the very end of it, we see how Jesus answers her. And he says this, And Jesus answered her, O woman, great, great is your faith. Be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. There are only two places in the Gospels that I could see that Jesus praises the great faith of another person. And and neither of them are, are religious leaders. Neither of them are even Jews. Both of them are Gentiles. One is this woman. The other is the centurion soldier who asked Jesus to heal one of his servants and says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. You see, Jesus could have just healed this woman's daughter and been done with it. But it would not have taught the disciples what they needed to learn. Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And Jesus draws out this conversation with this woman so that Jesus could be clear that through God's healing and salvation and deliverance, it is first for the Jews, but it is also for Gentile demon dog daughters as well. Now, not only does Jesus deliver Gentile demon dog daughters, and this will be shorter, I promise the next two points, but Jesus also heals deaf, dumb, decapolosians. Now, when I use the word dumb, I don't mean that in a, in, a, in a derogatory way. I don't mean that they're unintelligent. The King James Version actually uses this word deaf as well at the end of this passage to describe this man. I mean it as someone who cannot speak, or at least not speak intelligibly. Okay, so verse 31 says this, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Again, if you go back to our map, you will see that, um, if we could get the map up there. If you go back to the map, what you will see is Jesus, again, went from Gennesaret up to this region, and then he comes back down 
through to the Sea of Galilee uh, into the Decapolis area. What you'll notice in this path and on this map is there's regions of green. The regions of green are where uh, it is mostly Jewish, and the the tan regions are where it is mostly Gentile country. And so Jesus leaves this argument with with the Jewish leaders about what makes someone unclean. He goes to the unclean regions uh, uh, up here and the unclean region down here where there are a lot of Gentiles. It continues, verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, according to the Jewish uh, rules of the day, not biblical rules, but the Jewish uh, man-made rules, to touch a Gentile made you unclean. And now here they're asking Jesus to touch this Gentile man. And the question is, will Jesus touch him? Will he touch him on the shoulder? Will he touch him on the head? Will Jesus touch this man? Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. I'm not sure the last time you had someone stick their fingers in your ears. For me, it was children giving me a wet willy. It is very invasive, and it makes me very angry very quickly. But this is what this man is experiencing. He, he, he sees Jesus putting his fingers in his ears, but then it gets even way worse than that. Jesus spits on his dirty hands, and he touches the man's tongue. Uh, just to show you how disgusting this is, Scott, could you come up here? Could I spit on my hands and grab your tongue? Would that be okay with you? Renee will never kiss you ever again. <laughs> but that's how disgusting this is. This is how repulsive this is. And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't have to touch this guy to heal him. Look at the last miracle. He heals this girl from a distance. And yet Jesus touches this man's ears and touches this man's tongue, not for Jesus' sake, but for this man's sake, to show that Jesus will, will touch the most broken parts of our life and he will heal us. He does not shy away from our brokenness. He does not shy away from our deformities. He does not shy away from our pain, but he enters into it and he touches us in order to heal us. You know, this is honestly disgusting. Uh, it not only does it break COVID protocol, it breaks, you know, human decency protocol. But Jesus wanted to show these Gentiles that he was not repulsed by them, but that he came near to them and touched them in their brokenness. And then we get to verse 34. And again, so much loaded in this passage, but it says, and looking up to heaven, he sighed. This word sighed is, is often also translated um, that he groaned. And so why is it that Jesus, as he's touching this man with his deforming, is, is growing? Well, this word is also used in Romans chapter 8, this Greek word. And it says this, For we know that the whole creation has been together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And then here's the word, groan. We groan inwardly and wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, the physical pain of this man, the deformity of this man, the relational pain of this man. Jesus groans because he is grieving over the fallenness of this world, but he is also groaning for heaven, knowing that all things will be made right again. And so even in our own pain, when we groan, we groan over the pain of knees and of backs, but we also groan for heaven where God will make all things new again. And so Jesus groans on our behalf. 
because he has entered into our suffering. Verse 34, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, epitha, which means be open. And the, his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. You know, so often Jesus' miracles are, are a physical representation of a spiritual reality. And in this case, uh, what we find out, what we are reminded of, is that all of us are born spiritually deaf. None of us have ears to hear the good news of the gospel of Christ. And yet it is Jesus who heals us, who allows us even to hear the good news of the gospel and respond to it. But he's also the one who heals our tongues to proclaim the good news of Christ to others. And so salvation comes to this Gentile, comes to the Gentiles, because Jesus delivers demon dog daughters, but he also heals deaf Dumb Decapolosians. But the final thing that we see in this passage, which is really odd, this is really one of the weirdest passages we'll ever cover. But Jesus charges delirious, declaring dreamers. The last time Jesus was in Decapolis, uh, if you remember, he got off his boat and a man from the tombs who was demon-possessed came and ran at them and, and came down before him. And Jesus asked the demon-possessed man, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. There were at least 2,000 demons possessing and tormenting this man. And we know this because Jesus cast the demons out into a herd of about 2,000 pigs that then run into the sea and drown. As a result of this, the people from the town ask Jesus to leave town because they're afraid of him because Jesus took away a lot of their profit. And then we get later on in the story, um, this man comes to Jesus and he says, hey, can I go with you? You just healed me. And Jesus says, no. Don't come with me, but go and tell the, all the people that you can find, everyone in the Decapolis, what the Lord has done for you. And so he goes and proclaims the mercy of Christ and the transformation of Christ. And his testimony must have been very strong because when Jesus returns here in this passage, people swarm around Jesus. They bring their, their, their cripple, they bring the sick to, to heal them. And then we get in verse 36, it says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. In chapter 5, he tells this man to tell everyone, but here he tells them, tell no one about me. Tell no one what I had done. Jesus' primary mission was come and proclaim the gospel, but he was being so crowded by people who wanted physical healing that he says, don't tell anyone. And it continues, he says, but the more that he charged them, so he charged them multiple times, the more zealously they proclaimed it. This crowd was delirious. They were wildly excited about what Jesus had done. And they couldn't help themselves but to tell anyone that they could find. Pastor Robert Cunningham observed that in this passage, it starts with a man who cannot talk and it ends with a crowd who cannot shut up. Because that's what happened when this type of hope and this type of savior comes to town. I'm curious, have you ever had to keep a secret? Have you ever had something wild and fantastic and amazing happen and you know you shouldn't tell other people but you just can't help yourself? This happened to me this past winter. Uh, my oldest son, Corbin, was playing in a basketball game down in the Fond du Lac area and uh, it was just a brutal game. I mean, tons of people fouled out, tons of people were injured. Uh, it went into overtime and then went into double overtime and there was about 45 seconds left in the game and uh, we were down by two points, and my son's bringing the ball up the court, and so I start recording it because there's 45 seconds left, and who knows what's going to happen. 
and Corbin brings the ball up and then he goes to one side of the court and he almost loses it and he brings it back to the top of the key and there's a pick and then he dribbles in, but then he steps back and he shoots a three-pointer and it squishes and it wins the game. And so I'm going ecstatic, I'm yelling. I mean, my voice on the video cracks like a little girl. It's, it's embarrassing, but I don't care because I'm so excited about this, right? And so I take the video and I send it to Trisha's family, I send it to my family and say, oh, look at this, isn't it so amazing, isn't it awesome? Now the interesting thing is Trisha's family is not like this at all. Uh, their son could cure cancer and they wouldn't tell their neighbor. I mean, that's, that's how humble they are. They don't want to brag, they don't want to tell anyone. They're just so, they're just better human beings than I am, okay? But I can't help it. Like, if I don't tell someone, I'm going to explode, right? It's the same way for these people. They have to go and tell others about Jesus. It's just so amazing what Jesus has done. You know, here's such an interesting thing. We tell you to obey the commands of Jesus, right? This is one command that you do not have to obey. This is a command that you should not obey. You can go tell anyone and everyone how amazing Jesus is. He has given this to you as a gift. There's no prohibition from you of sharing the greatest news that you have ever heard and ever encountered in your life. The passage continues and says, and they were astounded, verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, that is super abundantly, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. The Gentiles probably did not know this, but they were echoing words from Genesis chapter one. When God created something, he looked at it and he said, it is good. When he creates all things, he looks at all things and says, it is very good. In the same way here, they're saying that Jesus has done all things well in his work of restoring fallen creation, in his recreation, he has done all things well. And so here again, you see, just as in the last passage, you have these Gentiles proclaiming the good news of the gospel to the Jewish disciples. They're showing this extraordinary faith that the disciples have yet to fully grasp. Are you astonished beyond measure at the work of Jesus? You can go and tell the world you are not prohibited. You are allowed to share it generously and freely with all. Let me end with this. Um, As the Gentiles proclaimed uh, Jesus, again, that last verse, they say he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They were not only echoing Genesis chapter one, but they were actually quoting Isaiah 35. Again, I don't even think they knew they were doing this, but Jesus was using it to call out the disciples. You see, in the book of Isaiah, uh, all hope seems lost. The people of God have rebelled against God for hundreds and hundreds of years. And finally, God brings his discipline upon them. He sends them out of the promised land. But much to their surprise, God also comes to give them this glimmer of hope. Wonderfully, God pledges to once again return to his people and to bring them the salvation that their hearts desire. And then God gives an indication of when the people of God will know when God has come to save his people. And we read this in Isaiah 35. It says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. Your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then at that time, when God comes to save, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, 
and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. By performing this miracle, making this deaf Gentile man hear and mute man speak, Jesus is announcing that he is not only the savior of the Jews, he is the savior of the entire world. And how would Jesus save the world? How would Jesus accomplish this salvation? Well, if you look back at this Isaiah passage, it starts this way. It says, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. And it says he will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. How should we not be anxious if he's coming with vengeance and recompense? Well, it's because he not only came to enact vengeance and recompense, but to take on the vengeance and recompense that we deserve. You see, it was at that offensive, repulsive, shameful cross that Jesus would fulfill this prophecy, both for Jews and for Gentiles, by taking on the vengeance and recompense of God that you and I deserve for our sins, so that we, dirty, demon, dog, deaf, dumb Gentiles, could be delivered by Jesus, healed by Jesus, and saved onto Jesus for all eternity. Friends, this is such good news in this passage. Jesus did not just come for the two people in this sanctuary. He came for us all. He came for the Gentiles to save us to himself and to make us a part of the people of God for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, there's a lot in this passage, a lot for us to think and process and to grapple with and wrestle with, Lord. But Lord, may we simply just worship you and enjoy you, knowing that that you did not have to come for us Gentiles, but that you came to save us and to draw us to yourself. May we receive it with thanksgiving, all of the extravagant crumbs of grace that you give to us from your table, Lord. God, now as we turn to the Lord's table, we're reminded of these crumbs of grace. It's not a feast. There's not a lot, but God, it nourishes our soul because you feed us spiritually through these elements. And so help us to receive and to be full, knowing your love for us Gentiles and us Jews here today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.